Matthew chapter 7. We'll continue on towards the end of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Started in chapter 5 and we're finally in towards the end of it, chapter 7. And we were last week in verse 21 through verse 23. Now, I didn't get to finish that. And because of the nature of the subject matter in verses 21 through 23, I'd like to repeat some things I've already said. Imagine that. Some things in Scripture not only bear repeating, but they are so important for you to know yourself that the more you hear it and the more you meditate on it, the more it becomes what you believe and what you know. You know, commercials are like that. You all remember, I'm sure, the two all-beef patties, special sauce, the cheese pickle, and all that. And, and you heard that so much that you finally could sing the jingle along with them. My problem was I couldn't forget it. But anyway, uh, some things in Scripture have a foundational bearing or foundational meaning on your life. Uh, the subject here has been a subject of great debate down through the ages, especially beginning in the Reformation era when the Protestantism, as they call it, began and the Bibles had been just printed and, and the common man could begin to read and, and teachers begin to emerge and, and light begin to flow and, and men begin to understand differently than they had before. They didn't have somebody telling them what the Bible believed. They could learn for themselves. But there's so many different ways the devil worked through that to misinform this one or to misinform that one. And so great debates came up and arguments and discussions came up about the word. One of those debates, verse 21 through 23, was in this context. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's unsettling to a lot of people because it, it tells us that, that the mere profession of a man's faith proves nothing. Because anybody can say, I believe. Anybody can say, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Anybody can learn to say that. You can memorize that and say that. But that doesn't necessarily prove that you're saved. It means that you're saying the right things. Say people would say that. Last time we asked, we asked the question, are these series of questions. How is a man ultimately saved? And the reason I ask that question is because, again, the nature of this context, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Now, you've had these, these theological positions down through the ages that said, well, man is saved only by faith. Others will say, no, a man is saved by works. A lot of the cults believe that you're saved by works and effort. And then there are those who believe that you're saved by both, by both faith and works. And there's great debates and arguments, trust me, back and forth over this. But as I said last week, and for me it kind of clears the subject up, 
Nobody can be born again or birthed into God's kingdom by anything that they do. There is nothing possible for a man to do or to attempt to do or try to do that can cause him to be born again. You're born again as an act of God. It's entirely something that God did, and he did it instantly. And then the Bible teaches us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or as 1 Peter said, we receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And so it's one thing to be born again and brought into the arena of Christianity, but it's entirely something else to live this life because there are multitudes of scriptures that describe what is required of Christians, that at no time did God save you in order for you to remain as you were. On the other hand, he says, if a man is a new creature in Christ, old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Jesus was describing how to know who a false prophet was to his disciples earlier in the study, and he said, you will know them by their fruits. And more than once in the Bible, the word fruits and works come up, deeds, things that people do which demonstrate what people believe. So it's one thing to be born again, to be brought to Christ, to have a new nature, to have a new heart, all the divine components that are required for you to walk in a way that gets God's approval are given to you. And a born-again man will do that. So we do. We go to James with the, the works thing, and he says that a man is not saved merely by professing he is saved. He said, you, you say you have faith, Another man has works. He said, show me your faith by your works. In other words, if I believe, then my belief in him will be the reason I live in a different way than I used to live. I will begin to walk in newness of life, not remaining as I was because I'm a new creature now. And I do believe that there are multitudes of people in churches who have been dismissed from living right because they are told it's not a big deal. That as long as you come to church, as long as you mean well, and as long as, uh, uh, you know, you know not to do a lot of things and, you know, to try to live as good as you can, that you, that's all it takes. You'll go to heaven. And yet the Bible doesn't say it like that. The Bible tells us if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, and those are the difficult verses, you're not fit for the kingdom. No, 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 I don't like to preach something else. Well, you know, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no... No, 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 don't, don't say that. In other words, don't make me come to grips with who God is or, as the psalmist says, don't let me learn the fear of the Lord by making me have to deal with my selfish self. I like things my way. I want to go to a church that preaches the way it comforts me. My ears itch to hear it a certain way, and I don't want to hear all that other stuff. Just tell me what the least basic thing I have to do to get into the kingdom. Don't add any more. Just let me have that, and that's all I want. And that's not the attitude a Christian has. A Christian is one who has, in Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, is a man in whom God has put a new heart and a new spirit, whom God says that that person, that he will cause you to walk in his ways keep his commandments, and so forth. Now, this is how we live. This is why we preach this is how we live, because faith comes 
by hearing. And by faith, I mean your faithfulness to God comes by knowing what to be faithful to. And this is how a Christian is supposed to live, and this is how we're supposed to walk. You know, the great debate on faith or works, you could say, well, is Jesus, is he just Savior or is he also Lord? Because if he is Lord, how do we know he's Lord of your life? We have to see fruit. And there has to be something that evidences an inward reality by an outward demonstration. It's got to be like that. And, you know, even in our revival ages and times and seasons, do we win souls to Christ or do we make disciples? I hope you know both. Well, this would be a good series. But when is a soul won to Christ? Is he won when he gets out of his seat with a remorse and sorrow in his heart and goes forward and asks God to forgive him? Because have you ever known somebody that did that and then gave it up? Of course you have. So when is the soul actually considered to be one? When is it a life-changing reality in the fact? Is it when he becomes a disciple? Well, no, I think it's when he's born again. But when he's born again, all these things will work themselves out, some more so, some more so than others, some quicker than others, or some more meaningful than others. There are 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold Christians, I guess. But what we have to learn is that we have a life to live. We can only be his disciples if we're his. We have to be a disciple. If we're not disciples, we're not his. And a disciple is a follower, is a learner, is a pupil. And so if we're to go into all the world and make disciples, we have to do it the way Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So this is a labor, a, a labor of love. Trust me with this, that the lots and lots of well-meaning church members drag their feet. They really don't want it to be a time-consuming, all-consuming way of life. And yet, what God gives us to live and the way God gives us to live requires all that you have. I mean, it's like... If you give up your life in this world for him, then you keep your life in the next life. If you won't do that, you can't live in that next life. It's got to be, it's got to be lay it all down. And, but on the other hand, <laughs> we ought to cut one of them off. But on the other hand, God is long-suffering, knowing that we do struggle sometimes. If you don't, I do knowing that there are times we could do better than what we are doing. Man, we're not lost, but we're just reminded of the fact that we need to put our heart and soul in what we're doing. And I'm not your judge and you're not mine. I'm not trying to be like you, and you certainly don't want to try to be like me. We all have the same word that we live after and the same Christ that we follow, each one of us. We all should have a compelling influence in our life to follow Jesus and to pray for your brothers and your sisters, and so on and so forth. So the issue is in verse 21 here. How will a man be saved? It's by doing his will, isn't it? You're born again. Now we're talking about your life, your walk, your salvation. And the Bible said, Jesus said, not everyone that says the right words to me, the right 
meaningful Christian words, Lord, Lord, not everyone that says that will enter into the kingdom. Why not? Because there's more to it than just saying the right things. There's more to it than singing the right songs. There's more to it than shutting your eyes and raising your hands and putting all your meaning into it. There's more to it than that. There's a walking out that door and tomorrow and tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow night, the next day and every day of your life is living a life. And the way you live it is by doing the will of God. You must do his will. Remember, I think we said this last week at 1 John 2, 17, he that doeth the will of God shall abide forever. Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 and verse 35, he said, whoever does the will of God, the same as my mother and my sister, my brother, or my brother, my sister, my mother. In other words, my family, Jesus said, those that I am connected to, related to, those who are one with me are those who do the will of God. So that makes it a very big, big deal. Now, I want you to turn to Romans 12 and Philippians 2. Romans 12 and Philippians 2. Romans 12, we're all familiar with. We quote it a lot. I do. I quote it a lot. Again, it's one of those verses which has great meaning to me because it's a foundational verse of Scripture in the Bible. It's foundational to a stable Christian life. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, is that a process? Somebody help me here now. Is the renewing of your mind a process or did it happen all at once? It's a process. You learn. Learning is a process. When your mother brought you into this world, she birthed you instantly. There you are. You're a living, breathing person. You don't know anything yet. Everything in you is designed to sin. Everything in you, if left alone, will cause you to deteriorate and perish. You were born like that. So when you get older, you start doing what to a child? You start teaching a child. Because you want to raise a proper child that they grow up and learn to do right, have manners, say thank you, and whatever is proper and right, have good skills, uh, obey the rules, you want that. In a similar way, when we come to the Lord, we're full of the world. We're full of the old ways. We're full of everything that was wrong and obnoxious and rude and everything that, everything that the devil could do. And this is my little man. My mind, my brain, all the years of my life I was saved when I was 28. Everything I learned was wrong. You know, everything had a, a view of what's in it for me type thing, especially Christianity. This is the way I was. I was formed like this by the world. My, my worldly attachment is what made me feel like the word was too hard. And that same thing is true now today as I speak. So those who say the word is burdensome or grievous, causing people to say prophesy something else, smooth things, is because my mind saw that it was going to cost me my identity. I'm going to have to become something else, and I'm, I'm not ready for that. But when I was born again, and I had a new life down here on the inside of me, I say out of your innermost being, I don't know where else to write put that, I became a new creature in Christ. Now, the influence that I have doesn't make me do what's right. But where my mind is, my will is also. Not only my intellect and my will, 
probably my emotions, but everything in this realm of my mind, we call it the soul, is where my will is. This is what makes me responsible all of my life. I have the power of choice just like you do. I live by choices. I'm standing here tonight by choices I've made, scars and all. I made those choices, therefore I'm responsible. I'm not a victim. Am I, Bonnie? All right, thank you. But we live by choices. Now, when I come here and I begin to learn or go wherever I go and whatever opportunities I have, whatever I avail myself to, if where I'm going is teaching me the Word of God with a view towards informing me what's right, then the what is right, if I will do what is right, I will be experiencing a transformation. As I begin to hear the right information, because I have a heart for it now, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. He can't see it. God has to open his eyes. So something down here now has a heavenly attachment. It's little, it's meek, and it's small. It's a small beginning. But God gives it just enough that he can handle it. And what God gives it, what comes through my ear, down here to my spirit, my mind often opposes it. You know what I mean? Well, how could that be? Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, who would do that? Well, I doesn't, that's crazy. Because you're trained like that. The, the world made us like that. This is the way, that's the way we think. We evaluate everything like that. Unconsciously, we, we do it. We see things, we hear things. Have you ever seen somebody wear something that was goofy? Oh, yeah, do open your eyes and go outside. And, and you see some stuff and you think, that's a goofy, because you're trained to judge like that. We, we may know better because we heard it, but that hadn't been formed in us yet. We just, we just it's kind of murky. But the more you begin to exercise yourself spiritually, you begin to say, I, 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 don't do that. I, 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 then God floods our hearts and minds with his will. Boy, this becomes just, he just floods us. We cannot attend church, hopefully, hopefully, you cannot attend church without God's will being further revealed to you. Something more, an opportunity once again for revelation of yourself, spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This work of God just starts taking place. And boy, on the inside, you start, you start getting a taste for something you've never had before. You start seeing things in a way you've never seen before. You start, you start understanding things you never understood before. And then the cost of all of that begins to pop in there. And then you have to count the cost. Do I really want to live this way? But a believer will say, I don't have any choice. I got no options. Because if I don't want to live this way, how am I going to live? You're going to go back to living the way you were and you're going to perish. You got no choice. You'll make a choice, but there's no options. You either live or die. Two ways. One or, it's either or. You make it or you don't make it. You live or you die. And the more I begin to command my will, the more I begin to say this I'm going to do, the more you begin to change your old way of thinking, you begin to say I will do it, the more the devil loses his grip and these strongholds that the devil had in your life, remember that, casting down 
imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Well, the knowledge of God is what God has given you, and your, your mind is opposing it. And so you have to grab that thing by an act of your will, say, I will not do that. I am not going there. I will not wear that. I will not talk like that. I will not watch that. I won't eat that. You just begin to make all of these right decisions that God gave you. Because this is the verdict in 1 John 1, 7. She said, be not deceived. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Now, God declared us to be righteous at the new birth because he made us right with him. He brought us out of the world and gave, he sanctified us in that sense. He brought us out of the world and put us in his garden or in his courts. But now we have a life to live. We must walk this way. This is Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind because the more the information changes from the old dumb stuff to the new divine stuff, the more life begins to have what the whole world's trying to find purpose. You got a world out there, if you just if you turn on a TV set, you're aware of that most people in this world, not some or not a lot, but most people in this world are living aimless. They have no clue in what's ahead of them or what's coming. They hope the bad stuff doesn't come. They don't know if it will. They live in fear. And when judgment comes on this earth, their hearts will begin to fail. They don't know how to cope with it. They've never been taught. They never wanted it. And what an what a awful, awful time the end times will be. How terrible it's going to be for people who just didn't have a taste for spiritual things. But how fearless, when we're delivered from all of our fears, how fearless it will be for those who have been growing. Philippians chapter 2, here's another verse. See, nothing is more fundamental to your faith. Nothing is more fundamental or necessary to a man's faith than the will of God. Because if we had finished Romans 12, the end of it said what? Be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that instead of your mind going, oh, no, your mind has this flash coming from the Holy Spirit that says that this is what the Word says. And you become word-minded. The Word becomes a sword. It's what you use to defend yourself spiritually. It's what you rely on to take care of you today if you believe it. This is what walking by faith is. I can't see the deliverance. I can't hear the voice of God. All I have is what he said. Will I count on that to work for me? Because if it doesn't, I'm doomed. And that's where the most of the people, the line is drawn. I'm unwilling to live as though something that hasn't happened yet is guaranteed to happen. I'm not willing to act like what was promised is going to come to pass because if it doesn't come to pass, then I could perish, I could die, whatever. And that's where the line really is drawn. It's called walking by faith. But you cannot walk by faith without knowing God's will. There's no way. You cannot choose what is some noble and good thing to do and think that if I do this, or if we develop and organize our system here of worship so that it's really good and we're helping people doing a lot, that this will get us into heaven because there is a way that seems right. 
Are we there? A way that seemeth right unto man, but the end there are the ways of death. We don't have to think of what we ought to do. He'll show us what to do. This is what the Holy Spirit comes to do. He will show you things to come. He will take what Jesus said and reveal that unto you. And we will stand without excuse. But I'll tell you what, the more you taste and see that the Lord is good, the more you want more of it. And you lose that, oh, no, fear. It just goes away. It just goes away. You're not afraid of tomorrow. Just like Paul said, where's your victory, death? Oh, don't, don't talk about dying. I don't relish talking about dying, but I'll, I know this. We're not going to live forever. Well, we will in another way. But this body that I guarantee you, this body changes. I've been in this one for quite a while, and I can detect a change in it. But I, my brain is just as good as it ever was. So is my body as far as getting me around where I need to go. It's just that, well, it's different. So the mind is renewed for one reason, so that the Word of God becomes clear. And the word of God will be a revelation of the will of God. Because that is supreme. We have nothing without that. We have only a form. We have a format or we have a system. But without God's will, we have nothing that will bring his approval. Are you here? Now, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, But God is at work somewhere. God is at work where? Now, let me ask you something. Does that mean that God is doing something? The word work is energeo, which is the same word for energy or energize. It's something that is doing something. God is at work where? In you. Now, why is God doing anything in you? Let me ask you another question. Do I have to have that? What would I have without that? I'd be left to myself. But God didn't save me and leave me to myself. He said, I'm going to make my abode. Didn't he say that? You abide in me in my... Oh, okay. So he begins to make his abode in us down here on the inside and in what we call our spirit. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, if God doesn't reveal his will to me, I cannot do what he wants. I can do something. I can do something nice or good, but I cannot do what he specifically wants. So, it's like one great theologian of yesteryear said, Augustine, he said, we will, but God works his will in us. Now, we do will to do something. I mean, I'm, I live by it. I'm responsible. We will. We make choices, but God works in us what that choice should be. Are you with me? Now, make sure you are, because I'll keep saying this if you don't. You have to go through it all over again next week. We do will to do things, but God works in us what that will should, should be. And we work, and therefore God works in us to do the working through us. In other words, in other words, 
If I get this right, God is at work in me both to will and do of his good pleasure. This is not something he does in everybody, does he? Well, he said to the Pharisees, he said, you're of your father, the devil. They weren't his people, were they? Okay, I want you to think. So those whom God chooses, is that still in the Bible? John 15, but you, you did not choose me, but I chose you and order. Okay. So God specifically, specially, or especially called me out of the miry clay and out of darkness and brought me into his marvelous light for the purpose of living in a way that glorifies him and not me. I glorified the devil with the old life. I'm going to be changed to glorify the Lord. So he says, God then begins a work inside of me in the transforming work in me. He wants to show me his will, that which is right and good and perfect in his sight. Ooh, might not be easy, but this is what he's showing you. Now, he also works in me the desire to do it. Okay? And so... I, by my will, I do what he shows me to do, which is what he wants me to do, which is God's will. Now, you know, and just bring up another subject, just throw it in here. I have nothing to boast of here. Because everything I'm doing is what he showed me to do. I'm only responding to what he said. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's called yielding to that inner workings, that innermost being thing. That word abiding in your heart becomes the way of life. Your mind is brought into submission. You bring yourself into submission. You humble yourself to the mighty hand of God. You begin to see the supremacy of living his life, his way on his terms. And if Christianity is anything at all, it is living on his terms. Now, people don't like that. I don't know what, well, I do know why. But that's the way it is. And woe is us if we don't teach it, and woe is us if you don't hear it, because that's the way we're supposed to live. God works in me to do something his way. Then he works on my will to be willing to do that. And so what I'm doing is what he wants done. What do you say in Philippians chapter 1? Go to the first chapter, look at verse 6. You believe that one, don't you? He that started a good work in you will complete it. Now, see, I call that eternal security. I believe that. God chose you not to perish, not to die, but he chose you to live. Didn't he? How does he do it? It's all of God. It's God's work. You have to will. You have to cooperate, but you're going to do what he wants when you're his. See, I have a will. Somebody said, well, not everybody will do things God's way. That's true. They, they won't, but you will. Is God able to make a man believe? What if a man doesn't want to believe? God would never make a man do something he didn't want him to do. Really? Remember the time the Egyptians, when the Israelites came out of Egypt? When they came out of Egypt, did they have enough Luxury there to build a lot of gold things in that little temple they had in the wilderness? 
Where'd they get it? They got it from those Egyptians that had ruled them for 400 years. How do they give it to them? They knocked on the door, and here's this old shaggy slave, this brick-making slave. Yes, uh, what do you want? I'll tell you what I want. I want all your gold. I want all your silver. I want all your clothes. I want them now. I'm waiting. And those people gave it to them. You think they wanted to? I just think they went and got it. I think God rules his creation. And I think he can rule it in whatever way he wants to. Every man in the Bible had to crawl upon his hands and knees for seven years to learn that. One point, learn that, that he rules in the kingdom of men. And he does whatsoever he pleases. You read that in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, he had to learn that. And God could do that. So, we come back to this thing about God's will and God doing a good work in you. God started a good work in you. I promise you this. If he started a work in you, he will complete it. And he does have a method and a way of getting your attention and getting you on the right track if you're not. It's called chastisement. Whom he loves, he chastens. Why? That you will not be condemned along with the rest of the world in 1 Corinthians 11. So, we have this picture. This is really important to me. I think it's, I think it's something every Christian ought to, ought to really grasp. I really do. That God does this work, does this good work to keep us and to bring us to himself. I said, well, that kind of makes, that kind of makes us viewing his commandments as some kind of rule or Duty or something, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Uh, uh, somebody help me here now. I need your help tonight in Luke 17 and verse 10. Now, there's something in there that will probably help us with this point. Luke 17, 10. When you have done all of those things which you voted on, that in verse 10, are you there? When the board meets next Friday night and votes on whether or not we're going to do this this month, and you do it, you get a star. Have you all found it by now? Jesus, in writing and telling his disciples, he said, I'll put it in my words, when you've done all the things that were commanded you, say. Say what? Say this. You're still an unprofitable servant. That is, you, get, you haven't done anything that you didn't know what to do except what God showed you to do. And what you did was what God wanted you to do, and only God could show you that. So you haven't really done anything. You were just a, you were a blank in creation, a dud. And the Almighty put light in the dud, and the dud came to life and said, Wow! He became an evangelist, a teacher, a missionary, a whatever he became, all by the power and the acts of God. And everything that he does, me here, you there, wherever we're going, whatever we're doing, whatever labor of love we're engaged in, what are we supposed to realize? That we are still what? How do you get that? Because we have 
only done, what's the end of that verse say, verse 17 say, we have only done that which was commanded us, which was our duty. Whew. So then you would agree with me tonight that God's will is our duty, an act of our will. Would you agree? You don't have to. I'm not asking you to make me right. I'm asking you to think about what you've heard yourself. Again, don't believe it because I said it. Check it out yourself. Jesus said we are unprofitable servants. That is, we got no praise coming. We get no, we get no special seat in heaven on the front row because we led 10,000 souls to Christ because God made you to lead 10,000 souls to Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. So just remember this, we're still, we're still unprofitable servants. You could have led nobody anywhere. You couldn't even have come to the Lord to do that unless God had brought you there. You wouldn't have had the knowledge of how to lead somebody to the Lord if God hadn't given it to you. You wouldn't know how to, how to deal with, with situations in people's lives if God hadn't showed you that. Everything we do that's successful and gains his blessing on it is because we have done his will. And so we have no praise coming from, look what I did. We've only done what we're supposed to do. A man who's, you know, the man who, who led all these people to the Lord in some missionary work in some continent years ago. He was supposed to. Those people didn't get saved. If they got saved, those people didn't get saved because he was special. He's just a hose. It's the water of life that came out of the hose that caused God to affect those people's lives because his words caused them to see things the right way. And they repented of their sins, not because of some named preacher, but because of the word the preacher preached. That's why many can say, Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. And yet they, they didn't have a heart for God. They knew how to say his word, and people would respond to the word. He thought he was some great one. Everybody thought he was some great one. Lo and behold, a lot of them became corrupt. Jesus said, I never knew you. Whew, that would be a tough one. So you see a lot of people today, when you begin preaching on God's will, when you start systematically breaking down the word to explain what the will of God is, people get offended. They do. Is it, is it God's will that we live by faith? Is it God's will that we walk by faith? Then what's so offensive about that? Nothing if you don't teach on it. If that's all you say, people say, well, I have faith in God, which they interpret by meaning I, with my mind, believe in what the Bible says as being true. They don't know, they can't tell you how it's true. They just somehow can gravitate into some mental grasping of something they don't understand. But hey, 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 don't tell me what it means because I'm convinced that I believe it. And so this has happened to people like myself. You lose favor with a lot of people. You get blamed for a lot of things and you get looked down upon by a lot of people because you take the subject of faith and you teach it. This is what it is. This is what it means. This is how it works. And people get edgy. 
because you're asking them to live in a life, live a life that they've never heard of before, and they haven't. All we've ever done is go to church and listen to sermons, be good people, live good lives, and, you know, that's all there was to it. I remember when I got saved in 1968, this quest, this quest to learn, just woke up that next morning wanting to learn. Didn't have a Bible, had to go borrow the pastor's Bible. He left for two weeks vacation. I got his Bible, though. It was a Schofield Bible. It had notes in it. I didn't know what annotated means, but I've learned that it was the little notes at the bottom of the page, which, boy, and I couldn't, I couldn't read it enough. I, it was, I had to go sleep at night. And I think, why we have to sleep? That's where these bags come from. We begin to read it. And then ask myself the question, what does that mean? What did Jesus mean there when he said that? How can I find out what that means? This is where I got in trouble. Because people who didn't know what it meant had an interpretation that was general and good enough. Oh, no. Not Brother Tom and terrible Tom and his trumpet of tribulation. It had to, had to know what everything means so you could break it down and explain it, what it means. This is what this means. And this is how this works. And people got edgy. All the revelation, the things that God began to show, if you're a Christian, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. And he got in trouble. People didn't like the things you said you know, in the Bible about God's will from a head covering, which is meaningless to most people, but it's in there. I mean, people ignore it, but it's still in there. From head coverings to marriage to healing. Healing's in the Bible, but it's an option for most people. But when you begin saying, no, Jesus died, so the, boy, that people say, are you telling me you don't believe? I'm just telling you as best I can with the little bit of understanding that I have what it means. Don't believe it if you don't believe it. But this is how I see it, that he is our doctor. We, Bonnie and I decided many years ago that he'd be our doctor. And after all these years, I don't know how many years it's been now, but it's, I don't want to count them. But many, many years we've been well. No doctor bills for, what, 40 years? What am I supposed to do? Say, well, I'm off in this area? I think I pushed it a little too hard one way or the other. But I come back to the place that what he taught is true, and if it worked for me, I should teach that. Jehoshaphat was blessed all over himself. He would just eat up with blessing. And you know what he did? He got all of his teachers and said, go teach the people these very things, because if God will bless me, he'll bless them because God's no respecter of persons. And the more he taught those things to those people, that's exactly the way they lived. They were so steeped in their faith and their trust in God that when uh, armies came up against them from the south, from down by that red, uh, the uh, salt sea, they come up by those cliffs in that mountainous area. They came up against Jehoshaphat. He just walked out there and started praising God. The whole nation of them did. And God caused them to kill each other. It's the only, only group in the Bible that had a war and lost nobody and did the most dumb thing that scholarly people could think of. They just walked out there without their swords and shields and just expected God to, do, to deliver them. He said he would. How did they get such faith? 
Where did such faith that they could literally do that come from? Asa, his father, didn't have that kind of faith. He believed God would help him in the battle. He faced a million Ethiopian soldiers and probably lost a whole bunch of his own. He won the battle. He said to God, God, help us in this battle. We're not as big as they are, and God did. Jehoshaphat comes along with a word all through him, and he got it into his people, and they didn't even need a weapon. They just said, Lord, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are upon you. And the prophet said, don't do anything. Just walk out there tomorrow and stand still. Would you have done it? Or would you say, my mama didn't raise no dummy. I ain't going. No. If you'd sat in the class as Ed said, and had the kind of anointing that those people obviously had, that, that made sense. Well, yeah, God can do this. God can do this. God can win a battle for us. God can restore an eye or a limb. Katie, what's too hard for God? We limit God because our minds can't fathom how this could be. But God is not a man that he thinks like us. He asks us to see things his way. But anyway. This is the problem with so many times. You, you, you get into holidays and you get into bunny rabbits and Santa Claus and people so offended they get so mad. Or you get into politics. that You know, that's not our role in, in society or running politics so we can divide our church with Democrats and Republicans or whoever else. Ah, yeah, yeah, an argument. That's not what we do. We leave that to God. God will God set up who he wants? lady in a barbershop one time over in Indiana where I was getting my hair cut. She said, so you're not registered to vote? No. She said, well, I don't see where you have any opinion at all about what, what we do or what happens in the government. I don't, think it, I don't think it would even apply to you. And I said, I pay a lot of taxes. How about that? And I remember she said, well, I don't know, whatever, you know, I'm back to cutting the hair. <laughs> I leave that to God. I leave that to God. So we're starting to learn a new way of living. Do you think it makes us more appealing to the world? You think our little church out here in this little concrete cathedral makes us appealing to anybody? No. That's the church that doesn't, and they start naming all the things that we don't do. Some of them I've never heard of before, but they say that. Is it true? I no. What difference does it make? You can't change everybody's opinion. You live the life. You let your light shine. Don't worry about it. If they speak evil about you, one day they'll see your good works and they'll be ashamed. That's what Jesus said. But see, the will of God changes our life. Jesus said the world will hate you. The stands that you will take the things you limit yourself to where you won't do this, you won't, you won't sue and you won't curse and you won't have a drink and you, just all these things that you, and you wear clothes that are more modest and you're not cool anymore. And oh, kids today, I, don't, I think they would all pass out if they couldn't be cool or raunchy. And so God says, no, let me have your heart. Give me your heart, young man, young woman. Give me your heart. And when he gets it, he begins to make everything come into focus. Oh, I don't need that. That kind of attention, I don't need. That kind of a lifestyle, I don't need that. The young man begins to grow up, and let's say he's lethargic or lazy, and he's kind of moping around, no ambition. And when God gets him, he begins to stir him up and said, you know, someday you're going to marry 
you'd be a sorry soul to get married right now. You couldn't, you can't support yourself. You need to get, you need to get out here and hustle. So he begins to respond and he begins to, and so God begins to bless him. She begins to see that, you know, her call in life is to be a wife and probably a mother. So she begins to prepare herself. That's not what people are doing today. Stay-at-home moms are what, low-grade, inferior, whatever? I mean, a mother who wants to stay home as a Christian and makes, make her children to be citizens in the kingdom of God is viewed as contemptible. Well, that's crazy. No, I didn't either. Nothing at all crazy about that. It's commendable. For it's the way God wants you to live. It's his will. And so you begin to do this, you begin to do that, you begin to live this way and live that way. God wants you to see. If a man has been regenerated in Titus 3, 5, if a man has been made new and born again, he will seek to know the will of God. It will be natural. You won't have to tell him he should be here. He or she will be here because it's the natural thing to do because it's the natural response of the life on the inside. It's what we do. Now, is salvation based on obedience? Don't answer. Is salvation based on obedience? Are we saved if we're rebels? Are we saved if we're in unbelief? Turn to Hebrews 5. This is another one of those things you teach and people don't necessarily enjoy this because it's a great demanding scripture. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9 where it says concerning Jesus that he is the author of eternal salvation to whom? Does your Bible say all those that obey him? Well, let me, let me break it down. This is the teaching part. Let me break it down then. Jesus is the author of salvation that is forever, eternal salvation to whom? Those who choose to do his will. Is that what obedience is? Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. God doesn't call all of creation his people. He doesn't call all human beings his people. He calls somebody his people. Who are they? They're, well, they're known by their doing things. At the end of Hebrews 10, he says, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, God says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So we have to do his will. We have to obey him. In John 8, 31, he says, if you continue in my word, then, then what? Then are you my disciples indeed. And verse 32 says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free, which implies that no man is free until he is set free by the truth that God gives him. Or in Jeremiah 7, 23, we sang the song, Obey my voice and I will be your God, you shall be my people. You can read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2. 
and you'll see the same thing there about obedience. In other words, here's what we're saying, going back to our study in Romans, I mean, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everybody that says to be the Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. But the ones who will enter into the kingdom are those who do my will. They will find out what it is. I will show it to them. I will make it known to them, and they will be willing in the day of visitation, they will be willing to do this. And they will be doers of his will, and they will learn his ways. Amen. Now go back to Matthew 7 so we can finish this up for tonight. Verse 23. Verse 23. He said, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Now who was he talking to? He wasn't talking here to the outsiders. He was talking to those who chose to get around him to do things that are about him. Listen to what he said. He said, I will profess unto them in that day, I never knew you. It's interesting that the word never, a Greek word, is made up of two words, a compound word. Never, it means never, not ever. In other words, there was no relationship there. There was no relationship between, between Jesus and these professors of faith. One translator, most commonly other translations say, I never approved of you. So there was something about the life, the way you lived, the choices you made, the way you conducted your affairs as a professing Christian that was denying the Lord. You were saying a lot of right things, but you weren't, you weren't doing things his way. I remember years ago in the faith movement, people would throw their glasses away and cancel their insurance and wouldn't go to doctors and all the things that identified them as a fully trusting in the Lord, and yet you couldn't get along with any of them. They weren't good daddies and mamas. They didn't even hardly try, and they were get their bills paid, and they were, it seemed like so much was left out. Oh, they did some things right. The Pharisees, they counted their little seeds and they tithed. Oh, boy, they had it just right. You know what Jesus said to them? He said, when you make a proselyte, your proselyte is twice as much a child of hell as you are. Your religion is only destroying you. You think that all these little deeds that you do and all these little things you do is, makes you superior to other people? Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other was me. One stood thus and prayed with himself, I thank thee, God, I'm not like other men. I fast and I pray and I tithe and I'm this and I'm that. And the other man could not so much as lift up his head unto heaven. He's so ashamed of his sin and his criminal behavior. And all he could say was, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said? One man went home right with God. The other man didn't because he was self-righteous. So what happens is that when God begins to deal with us, he begins to change us because if he doesn't and we have no relationship with the Lord, we're not connected to him. It's like W.E. Vine once said, he said, I have never had an approving connection with you. That's why he would say what that verse means. I never had an approving connection with you. You came, you sat in front of me. You're like five foolish virgins. Virgins, candles, 
lamps, crowd, right people, looking for the same thing. This is tough. And yet, I never knew you. Never knew you. Matthew 25, never knew you. So there's something that, you know, fear and trembling is going to work its way into our lifestyle at some point before the Lord comes because there's more to this life than just reading a scripture, hearing a verse, and then going off with it. It's something more than that. Because again, foolish virgins, light, candles, clothing, a message with the right crowd looking for the same thing, they all slept. And yet, one little feature, it didn't take enough oil. They did not anticipate we might need extra oil, and they, I guess, assumed on the Lord, oh, it don't matter, it's no big deal. They didn't, they didn't make it. That's pretty serious. But he says, I never knew you. We never had a connection. You knew me, I didn't know you. You knew who I was, I didn't know you. Now, of course, God knows everybody, but he didn't know them in the way that we should. Listen at this. One man wrote, he says, I never knew you is, is another way of saying, you never knew me not to be known of the Lord is to have never known him. He said, you never knew me, but not to know the Lord is never to be known of him or by him. How do you know the Lord then? I don't want to get into this. We're already time to go, but didn't the Bible say you draw nigh unto God, not a ministry, not an establishment, not a system. We said you draw nigh to God, and what will God do? He will draw nigh to you. He will come into focus so that you can see who he is. What was the secret place of the Most High in Psalm 91? It's the place where El Shaddai, he's called. The high and inaccessible one cannot be reached except by invitation. And a man who goes there and begins to fellowship with the Lord and learns about the Lord, his life changes. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, mount up with wings, run, do, never be weary. That's the way our, That's the way we should live. Our youth is renewed. Isn't this a part of it? It's a part of what God does in us because we know his will. Our faith embraces his will. We say, be it unto us according to thy word. We believe it, and he does it. The world thinks we're lucky. The world thinks whatever they want to think. Well, who then in closing tonight, who then does God know? He's got to know somebody. If he said, I never knew you, then who does he know? Well, in John chapter 10, he says, I know my sheep. Remember that? And my sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. This is who it is. So we learn. We assemble. We learn. We've had a relationship. It's growing. We need more. We want his fullness. So we seek whatever portion we can get tonight that brings us into that life. And the more you hear it and the more you do it, the more he rewards you for it. The more you take no thought for the world, the more everything begins to change and, and God becomes who he is. He said in 2 Timothy 2, he said, 
in a large house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but there's also vessels of wood and such. He said, if a man therefore would purge himself from these, he will be a vessel unto honor, prepared, fit and meat and so forth for the master's use, ready for every good work. For that we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, are we not? Created unto good works. We can't do just anything and make it good. It's got to be what he gives, and that's what he gives us. Who does God know? In Nahum, you don't have to look for it, but in Nahum 1.7, he says, he knoweth them that trust him. God knows. Now, he said, depart from me whom? You workers of iniquity. That in itself is a sermon. But iniquity is one of the words for sin. There's transgression, there is sin, there's iniquity. You can't make them always mean only one thing specifically. Sin, the word sin, covers a whole gambit. So could iniquity. But so often, iniquity in the New Testament is translated lawless. And therefore, the picture that I get from iniquity in the New Testament context is one who is without law. It's not that they haven't heard it, they have rejected it. I, I'm not going to be ruled by what the Lord says. I have another version, view, or way that seems right, and that's, this is how I see it. Because that's what people say a lot. I've heard this many times. I'm like, well, I don't see it that way. And I'm not saying that I'm right and they're wrong. When I really do believe I'm right, I can't convince them that I am, simply because they don't want to believe it that way. There are denominational spirits that are so lodged in any, any person's heart in those systems, they cannot change. They cannot change. Catholicism as a religious spirit consumes people to where no matter what other religion or what other experience they have, they can almost never escape that. They will gravitate back to it at some point. If they're in danger, they'll start this stuff. It's just a, it's a spirit. But iniquity, it's not the absence of the law. It's just the unwillingness to let it rule you. And therefore, you become lawless. And the Bible says in the last days, lawlessness will increase, especially amongst the church folks. That's why judgment will begin there first. Because God isn't going to let people get, get by with doing things their own way and leaving his word out of their life. And if you'll turn to Luke 13, I'm going to close. This will be it. Luke 13, verse 24. Jesus said, strive, that word means agonize, strive to enter in at the straight gate for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in when shall not be able to be disqualified. When once the master of his house is risen up and has shut the door, that will happen. And you begin to stand without and to knock at the, at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say to you, I don't know who you are. Then you will begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence. We went to the meetings, Lord. We were there. We witnessed. We, we bought the tapes, Lord. You've taught in our streets, in our church. Remember that, Lord? I came forward. Remember that? But he shall say, I tell you, I know not who you are, 
Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. All of you that heard the truth but didn't want it to be like that, but you had a form of that, a seems to be good enough, that's what more people, he said, it's called iniquity. In other words, closing with this, you cannot know the Lord and do things differently than what he said. You either are willing to do what he said or the consequences of such a choice is not good. I say to all of us here, God help us to do the right things the things which you teach us to do in your word. God, deliver us from being iniquitous, lawless, self-ruled, self-centered, selfish. Help us to lay down all of our objection, all of our opposition to you, to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and to be ruled by your spirit. Amen. Amen.